1: Folks, welcome to the Eric Metaxas Show, sponsored by Legacy Precious Metals. There's never been a better time to invest in precious metals. Visit LegacyPMInvestments.com. That's LegacyPMInvestments.com.
0: Welcome to the Eric Metaxas Show. Back again, eh? Glutton for punishment, eh? When will you ever learn? Now, here's the host that you hate to love the man who was the reason your friend sponsored your last intervention Eric
1: Metaxas! Folks, you're listening to a special edition of the show. These are the audio versions of amazing conversations I had. Socrates in the studio. These have not aired yet. The videos are not out yet. We want to encourage you to go to Socratesinthecityplus.com. Socratesinthecityplus.com. Sign up. This goes live January 4th. You can see the videos. It's amazing. I also want to encourage you, if you haven't yet, go to Metaxistalk.com. And give to CSI, one of the greatest things you could conceivably do around the Christmas season, an amazing gift for anyone you can think of. Go to go to Metaxistalk.com, click on the CSI banner, be generous. It's a beautiful thing. MetaxasTalk.com and don't forget Socrates in the City Plus And now here's my conversation with the great Margarita Mooney at Socrates in the Studio. Here it is. The, the idea of, um, I mean, the title of the book here, The Wounds of Beauty, Seven Dialogues on Art and Education, I'm interested in that concept. Um, and I know um, in uh, a lecture you gave not long ago, you're quoting um, Pope Benedict, uh, who at the time was merely uh, Ratzinger, but uh, whom we now know as Pope Benedict, uh, he said Beauty attracts us to something other than ourselves. And then he goes on to say, this is amazing, this longing causes us to suffer. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of a wounding that happens in our encounter with beauty that somehow draws us to God, draws us out of ourselves. These are big, beautiful ideas. So I want you to talk a little bit about that concept of the wounds of of beauty? What, what, what do we mean by the wounds of Great. beauty?
2: Look, I picked the title because I think for some people, right, when you hear that title, you immediately think of beauty as a consolation in our sadness. And there's something to that, right? Most people can think of a time when they were sad and a beautiful sunset was encouraging or made them feel good. Um, and that's not bad, right? God gave us beautiful things to enjoy. I'm not against that. But the title, Wounds of Beauty, Ratzinger used it, as you described, as kind of like an arrow piercing the heart, that what true beauty does, and again, let's think back to the Christo uh, Panto that I, that I mentioned a moment ago. Um, a true beauty, it does inspire us and call us, but it doesn't point us towards itself. It says, hey, there's something greater than, me. right? So
1: It doesn't deny itself. That's right. But it is also a window beyond itself to God. It
2: says, I can't fulfill you. The fulfillment you're seeking might pass through me, but it's pulling you somewhere else. So, again, just to give you an example of an encounter I had with Christo uh, Pantocrator, Christ in glory. I was at a friend's wedding in Serbia. And I found a Catholic church to go to in the morning. It was an Orthodox wedding, but I wanted to go to Catholic mass. I love going to Catholic mass in foreign countries, seeing what it's like. But that day I was really sad because it was the six month anniversary of the death of a young student who I had mentored, John Artunian. And I woke up that day thinking, how can I go celebrate my friend's wedding when I'm just grieving over the loss of this young man still? And thankfully a Catholic priest had emailed me and said, listen, your grief is normal. It's a human response. But you have to picture where he is now. You know, he's not suffering anymore. And I walked into this church and behind the altar was this giant image of Christ in his glory. And I tried to use my imagination to picture this young man is now in the glory. And what I realized, so yes, my emotions were soothed, but I was also sorrowful because I realized that what was in need of healing wasn't him anymore. It was me that it was my own incapacity to believe in God's glory. My own lack of faith was what was making me sad. But yet that face of Christ, which is beautiful, yet strange, was calling me and calling me to my own kind of conversion. And it was like a willingness to say, okay, I'm, I'm going, I need to change. I need to rejoice for my friend who's getting married today. And I wasn't rejoicing alone. I was bringing the love of Christ both in death And in marriage. And then at the marriage, Eric, you've probably been to an Orthodox wedding. I love Orthodox wedding ceremonies. Um, Actually, what is marriage? It's the death of two people and the coming together of one. So what's so wonderful about Christianity and its understanding of beauty is that out of death can come a new life. And believe me, a lot of people right now want that hopeful message. And they're not going to get it from Nietzsche. And they're not going to get it from postmodern art. Now, the people that I talk to also may not be going to beautiful weddings in Serbia, though I highly recommend it. If if you're ever invited to an Orthodox wedding, I think they're the most beautiful liturgies I've ever seen in my life. But I want people who read my book to understand that we can all take steps towards restoring this beauty, right? Um, How do we do that? How do we do that, practically speaking? Well, one, let's stop patronizing uh, modern arts and let's start patronizing traditional Christian art. There's a wonderful workshop in England called the Chichester Workshop for Liturgical Art. They're apprenticing artists in this old-fashioned way. They're doing beautiful art for Anglican churches, for Calvinist churches even, who traditionally don't have a lot of art, but they're realizing that they need to. There are ways to do this. But in your own home, think about your own home. Now, when people come to my home, um, I'm now married to an artist who does uh, uh, traditional Christian art. And as part of our last conference, we opened up our house for people to see his workshop. I thought we'd get 10 people. We got like 100. Don't ask me how they all fit. But there's this fascination with the process of making art. And the fascination with an artist describing the mathematical, scientific process. My husband's degrees are all in math and physics and engineering. So he has this... Science of materials approach to his beautiful art. But then they also saw our home, which is intentionally designed according to the principles my my husband talks about in his book, The Little Oratory, that when you walk into our house, the first thing you're meant to see is the image of Christ in his glory, as I mentioned a moment ago, but then also the image of Christ with his mother, how he came into the world, and also an image of Christ on the crucifix. So we have these three central images the entrance of our house. You go a few feet, then we have the most important people in our lives, our wedding picture, our families, because the humans get their dignity from these sacred images. Then we have plants because God's creation is good. My husband is a gardener. I do the indoor plants. He does the outdoor plants. But that creation, plants, is also a reflection of God's glory, right? So the house kind of moves out. And then we actually do have abstract heart. My husband will defend abstract art. He says it's about as good as a curtain. You know, curtains can give nice color to a room, so can abstract art. But if you think a curtain is going to teach you what's inside your soul, he's going to say you're kind of a little off there. Um, But he does make abstract art and he makes landscapes, right? So he makes abstract art. He makes landscapes. He makes sacred art and he does portraiture. But those are all expressing very different things, and I think the point he's making is that abstract art can't express what an image of Christ can express, because Christ was actually historically a person.
1: The um, I, I wasn't going to bring it up. I didn't. I, I, it just came to me now that uh, in my book, "Is Atheism Dead?" At the end of the book, I'm, I'm really talking about evidence for God, and the evidence for God from everywhere, whether science, archaeology, is 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 almost preposterous. It's the evidence for God is everywhere. But there's a chapter at the end of the book called The Witness of Beauty, Mm -hmm. how beauty somehow uh, points to God, whether you like it or don't. Uh, My my wife and I were in Montauk recently looking at a sunset. And I shouldn't say this publicly. I don't want my girlfriend to know. But um, we were looking at the sunset, and it was so beautiful that I almost wanted to get up in this outdoor restaurant and tell everybody, l- l- doesn't this make you believe in God? It was that beautiful that I thought to myself, what are people thinking as you look at this, this glowing orange globe? Why does looking at that pierce your soul? You know, you, you, you have to ask, what are people thinking why do people look at sunsets? Why does, what is this doing for them? And I, I think this is the work that you're doing is you're helping them understand why Precisely. they want to look at a sunset. What is happening there that is just, it's transformative. Folks, right now in other parts of the world, people's lives are being threatened simply for believing in Jesus. People have been enslaved for their faith. So listeners to this show know that I'm passionate about the work of Christian Solidarity International because they protect and free those who are being persecuted and enslaved for their Christian faith. I've got to thank you for your life-changing generosity for years now. If you've given a ESI through this program, you have played a role in freeing literally thousands of captives. So as we near the end of this year, can I ask you to give once again your gift of just $250 will free a woman in Sudan who has been enslaved. For years, you can buy a believer's freedom and provide her with food and other supplies necessary to start her new life. Just $250. Maybe you can give more and free more people. Call 888-253-3522. 888-253-3522. Or go to metaxastalk.com. Please do it. Metaxistalk.com. Legacy Precious Metals has a revolutionary new online platform that allows you to invest in real gold and silver online. In a few of these steps, you can open an account online, select your metals of choice, and choose to have them stored in a vault or shipped to your door. You have access to a dashboard where you can track your portfolio growth in real time, anytime. You'll see transparent pricing on each coin and bar. This puts you in complete control of your money. The platform is free to sign up for. Visit LegacyPMInvestments.com. And open your account and see this new investing platform for yourself. Gold hedges against inflation and against a volatile stock market. A true diversified portfolio isn't just more stocks and bonds, but different asset classes. This new platform allows you to make investments in gold and silver, no matter how small or large, with a few clicks. Visit LegacyPMInvestments.com to get started. You're going to love this free new tool they've added, Legacy. PMinvestments.com, legacy pminvestments.com. Check it out. Well, you wonder why I always dress in black. Folks, you're listening to a special edition of Socrates in the Studio. These have not aired yet. The videos are not out yet. We want to encourage you to go to Socrates in the City Plus.com. Sign up. This goes live January 4th. You can see the videos. It's amazing. So
2: start with a lot of young people is precisely what you just said, beauty in nature. There's a lot of agreement about what's beautiful in nature. Sunsets, you know, parks, trees. You don't really have to convince people that a sunset is beautiful. I've never actually heard somebody say it's ugly. But the question is, how do you go from that agreement on beauty in nature And help people to see that it's not, like, again, I go back to Augustine, right? He said, oh, you know, the birds, you're so beautiful. And they said, well, we didn't put ourselves here, you know. Oh, you know, tree, you're so beautiful. Well, I didn't create myself, right? How do you help people see that the beauty they're encountering in nature, well, guess what? The sunset's over in a minute, and then it's gone. The lasting beauty is the creator of that beauty. And I do think people are open to that idea, because if not... Listen, before I knew all this stuff about beauty, I was sure I was a practicing Catholic. I went to mass. I was interested in the intellectual life. But when I had emotional issues or problems, what would I do? I mostly turned to entertainment. You know, let's go have a good laugh. Let's 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 go to the beach. Let's go hiking. Let's go on a trip. Let's go to a museum. And all that's great. But at the end, there's still something deep inside of you that's looking for a connection. That's looking for the eternal. And so little by little, I discovered the Catholic mystical tradition, right, through St. Teresa of Avila or St. Therese of Lisieux, that actually inside of our souls is this beautiful place of the encounter with God. And what's so beautiful about experiences in nature is that it helps us to see that God is actually in us. And when you've seen that, and again, we are human beings, We're, we're created, we need to touch and to smell and to see beautiful things so that we can recognize that presence in her soul of the eternal. And so what the Catholic mystical tradition has helped me to do is to live this dynamism, right? You can't simply be contemplating God's beauty in your soul all day long. You have to get out there. You have to toil. You have to make things. You have to deal with real people. You have to deal with brokenness. But when you've learned That through prayer and through contemplation, that material things can all give glory to God, even if they're broken, because you're standing there in the brokenness and you're witnessing to the light in the midst of the brokenness. So, again, I wrote this book during COVID because we need people right now in this country who can witness to the light and not only through our ideas and our philosophy and our politics, all of which we need. But you need to be experiencing that light deep inside of your soul. And I tell people, whether or not the people around you know that you're a Christian or know what you believe, they can sense when somebody's a nihilist or when somebody has the light of Christ in them. They may not know what it is, but I'm telling you, a woman who helped me when I went through a very painful experience of being denied tenure at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, a woman who helped me more than anybody called me from her deathbed, dying of cancer. She said, I'm not really a believer, but I've always felt something special about you. And I wanted to call you as I'm dying of cancer and just ask you to pray for me. I feel a special connection to you and I can't explain it. And I've, I've just seen that, that people who, she was a great person, a very virtuous person, a very hardworking person, but she hadn't grown up in a house of belief. And when she's facing her final moments, facing her creator, she thinks of a human person who reflected something of that creator to her. And she grasps for it. And this is the hope that we need today. Because there are a lot of people who are in despair right now. Look at our mental health crisis. This is the other reason that I did this. It's the other reason that I talk about this in places like Princeton and Yale. Because the mental health crisis is out of control. And I've had people in administration at major public universities and private universities tell me, we cannot hire enough psychologists to fix this problem. It's like the more we spend on psychology, the deeper of a hole we get into.
1: Well, that, that actually makes sense, right? It's like the more, the more taxpayer money we throw at the quote-unquote war on poverty, the worse it becomes. It can't be fixed this way. It can only be made worse this way.
2: Well, because ultimately, if you don't believe that your life has dignity— Why struggle with your mental illness? And I had a student who came to me at Yale who had been struggling with a lot of mental illness. And she said that she didn't think her life would really matter whether she was alive or six feet under the ground. She came from an atheist family. And I finally just said to her, listen, I know you don't believe in God. You know, you've never set foot inside of a church, but I'm telling you, you have a dignity that can never be taken away. And whether you overcome your mental illness or not, you are created in love and for love. And, you know, she went and found in New Haven. I actually couldn't find any bookstore in New Haven that sold a Christmas card with Jesus, Mary and Joseph. It was all joy and peace. But again, we're not looking at the picture of Jesus. We're not looking at a picture of his mother. We're just talking abstractly about
1: well, and the joy it, of the it, season. It, and, and of course, the concept of joy and peace, these are utterly meaningless concepts when they're disembodied in that way. What, what is it? And who's, who's against peace? But what does it mean? How do you get peace? Uh,
2: precisely. And I actually think a lot of... Um, Bad things come into the world through people who proclaim that they're doing it in the name of peace, but can't actually put their feet in the ground of a, of a tradition. Right. People throw out What did communism do? Right. You know, reeducation camps meant, you know, you get a musket in your butt and you have to go, you know, cut down sugarcane until you get rid of your belief in God. I mean, like the playing around with language. But this student who was herself not a believer, she actually somehow found a card with Jesus, Mary and Joseph on it and put it on my door and thanked me for open thoughts and big hugs. But what I realized when in these schools where people are truly struggling, they're not just struggling psychologically. They're struggling with this fundamental question of being, why does this world need me to exist? Would the world even care if I ceased to exist? It's not a psychological question. It's an existential one.
1: Well, this is, it's interesting because, um, what it points to is the idea that we're at a point in the culture where we're living on fumes. We're running out of the fumes themselves. But we have divorced ourselves from the idea that every human being is made in the image of God, is sacred and beautiful, and that the God of the Bible dies for us, values us so much, unimaginably much, that he dies for us to redeem us. There's something so ennobling and beautiful about that. And even if you don't believe that literally or whatever, you, we've still been living in a culture that reflects those ideas. And that has been going away month by month, year by year, day by day. And we're now at a point where, as you're describing it, people are in genuine despair because they have been told you're an accident, you evolved by chance, out of the primordial soup, your life is literally meaningless. Like, your life is literally meaningless. You're an accident, so suck it up and get a good job and, you know, do your best. But clearly, people are saying that that, 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 that doesn't resonate w- with me. If that's true, I should commit suicide. If that's true, why, why are you telling me that? Why would I even want a good job? Why would I want to do anything? And, and so at the heart of all of this really is, is that question of who are we? What are we meant for? Um, and, and, and I really do think it's, it's fascinating when we're talking about the beauty of nature. Mm-hmm. I had this thought not so long ago. I thought nature is always beautiful. It's, it's, it's kind of a strange thing. Nature is never tacky. <laughs> only human beings can do tacky nature there is nothing in nature ever anywhere that is tacky and i thought that is a clue about something even if you don't know anything you'd say well what why is that what is that what what is in me that responds to nature okay. to beauty well,
2: that's funny, Eric. I never thought of anything that way, but I wouldn't say that. what I'm here for. That's a very good one. I wouldn't say that everything in nature is already um, in its perfect ideal state either, right? So most of human experiences like Central Park is a human creation along with nature, right? So nature can be, I mean, nature also expresses itself in decay. One of the people I interview in the book is called the cheese nun. You know, she has a PhD in microbiology and learns about the mysteries one, of the faith. One of
1: the people in this book is called The Cheese yeah, Nun? Yeah, well,
2: that's not legally her name. It's not even her name it's It's not monastery. her baptismal name? No, her baptismal name is Noella okay. Marcellino. Okay. But there's a documentary about her called The Cheese Nun, because people were fascinated by this nun in a habit who got a PhD in microbiology and makes artisanal French cheeses. Yeah. But she doesn't do it because artisanal French cheeses taste good, though they do. I've had her cheese in her monastery. Yeah. She does it because the process of cheese making is about bringing something beautiful out of something that's decayed, and so her her understanding of nature is like death and decay is part of nature. But we as human beings can step into that death and decay and still bring something. Good out of it.
0: Sailing and reach before a following sea. She was making
1: MyPillow is excited to bring you their biggest bedding sale ever and just in time for Christmas. For a limited time, get the Giza Dream Bed Sheets for as low as $29.98, a set of pillowcases for only $9.98, and rejuvenate your bed with a MyPillow mattress topper for as low as $99.99. They also have blankets in a variety of sizes, colors, and styles. They even have blankets for your pets. Get duvets, quilts, down comforters, body pillows, bolster pillows, and so much more. All the biggest discounts of the year are happening right now, so don't miss out. They're also extending their money-back guarantee for Christmas until March 1st, 2024, making them the perfect gifts for your friends, your family, and everyone you know. So go to MyPillow.com, use promo code ERIC, or call 1-800-978-3057, and you'll get huge discounts on all MyPillow bedding products, including the Giza Dream bed Sheets for as low as $29.98, and get all your shopping done now while quantities last. Again, use code ERIC and save MyPillow.com, use code ERIC. Ooh, yeah. All right. Here we go folks you're listening to a special edition of socrates in the studio these have not aired yet the videos are not out yet we want to encourage you to go to socrates in the sign up this goes live january 4th you can see the videos it's amazing
2: What true beauty does, it can disturb you or it can be decaying, but it contains within it a seed of growth. But again, we need to understand, again, that through grace into the nature that is beautiful yet decaying, we're called to order it. And this is actually the grand calling that God has given us. He's given us a piece of his divine intellect that we can, whether it's woodworking or gold leaf or architecture, gardening, right? Cheese making. We're participating in the divine intellect. And if we don't do those things, then nature becomes unwieldy and it can be uninhabitable even to human beings. So it's, again, I love it. It's not about anything in nature being tacky, but in seeing in nature, the, the co-creative capacities we have to bring beautiful things out of what's Limited because only God ultimately is infinite. And as I mentioned earlier, I think a lot of these young people I talk to who may call themselves atheists and don't believe in something, they're ultimately really relieved to find out that there's something bigger than themselves, outside of themselves, that's good. You know, one time on Valentine's Day during the COVID pandemic, on Valentine's Day, I was on a panel about suicide. Yeah. With a comedian, a psychiatrist, and an existentialist. Go figure. Two of them were in person, two were on video. The psychiatrist who worked at a university hospital said that, you know, at least half, if not more, of the mental illness cases that come to him are not mental illness. They're existential. This fundamental question of why should I exist as opposed to not existing? And the comedian named Jeremy McClellan He gave the best reason to convert to Christianity I've ever heard. You know what it was? Because life is funnier when you're a Christian. And I was like, strange answer, right? But what he said was that as a comedian, part of what he does is try to kind of make fun or make light of human darkness. And, you know, you make a lot of self-deprecating jokes and, you know, you just observe human beings and you talk to a lot of people. But he was really plagued by this fear that really, if you take atheism for what it is. It's the denial that there's any meaning or order in the universe. And that's dark. And so he realized that when he converted to Christianity, the message of Christianity is not, as he said, if I pray 20 times a day, I'm saved. And if I miss one, it's 19. Oops, you know, I missed it. He said, the central message of Christianity is that the world in and of itself is created in love. And that I'm here because the creator loves me. So he said, I can face the darkness and I can even make jokes about it because I have this deeper hope. And so when talking to someone who's very sick from mental illness or who's depressed, the the message is not, hey, do this and you're going to feel better, right? People tell them that all the time. The message is, regardless of how you feel, you are here because there's something bigger than you that loves you. And let that sit with them for a while. And Hopefully they can respond. And so what I say to people as well, if you're feeling lonely and you're feeling depressed and you're not sure about yourself or why you exist, how about you put yourself someplace where you can serve other people? How about you you give of yourself, right? We're telling so many young people that their happiness ultimately lies in what they can achieve, right? This kind of individualism. And what I share with students is that, you know, my first book was about Haiti. And what really struck me about Haiti, tremendous material poverty, but an unbelievable joy. And what I realized was that, although I thought because I was so much materially better off than people in Haiti, that in order to kind of, I don't know, maybe win their love, I had to do something for them or bring them something material. What I realized is that people who don't have a lot of material possessions. They see straight through you and they know and they want to know who you are before they even think about taking something from you. And plus, they don't want to take something from you. They want to participate in something. They want to co-create with you. So this whole idea that we could solve all the world's problems by somehow taking this finite amount of goods and in a utilitarian way, distributing it more evenly. It's actually not a very good way to help the poor. The poor have a tremendous capacity to create, and I think we need to approach the poor with an economy of abundance and superabundance that, sure, by teaming up with people in Haiti, my gifts and their gifts can come together to do something greater. But the moment I've looked at a poor person as if they have nothing to give, I've already sunk myself. So this utilitarian mentality that we tell the high achieving, like, you know, go be your best self and achieve all this and do all this. And then, you know, you go give of what you have and, you know, tell other people how to make things. No, no, no. We're called to co-create. So in Haiti, I did this through song, right? One of the ways that I made friends in Haiti was by learning songs. By the way, I love singing in languages I don't speak, you know? Um, You can memorize the tone. You can memorize some of the verses, the words, and you can co-create music. Now, I did learn Haitian Creole, but give me any language and I'll try to sing in it. Right. We can we can work in a garden together. We can worship together. There are all kinds of things we can do with people very different from us that are creating beauty and are creating something good. And if we do that then whatever our unique skills are at science or engineering or painting or mathematics or writing, then those skills will be rightly understood as part of the common good. We have our individual calling, but we're also called to cooperate with others to create the common good.
1: we talk about beauty, we tend to think of uh, f- physical beauty uh, images. But music um, also obviously uh, can be beautiful or ugly. Um, and it's fascinating to me how um, I, I, I think I, I probably write about it in the, the chapter, The Witness of Beauty, in my book, Is Atheism Dead, about how an experience my father Tells me about, he's 96 now, but when he was about 16, uh, the war was on uh, and Cephalonia, where he's from, was occupied. And he was uh, in the square of Argostoli probably at midnight, um, moon, beautiful summer, in the middle of war. And someone from a rooftop someplace was playing, suddenly started playing a trumpet. Uh, and I forget the song or whatever, but he says it was literally the most beautiful thing he ever experienced in his life. And so you have all these people sitting there in the midst of occupation and war, listening to this, tears streaming down their faces. And you think, why? Because somehow that musical beauty communicated something transcendent. It wasn't just noise. It wasn't just sounds it pointed to something on the other side of the war. It pointed to, and, and, and I think about that, the meaning of beauty that, that, that somehow it points. I mean, if, if you listen to John Cage, you want to kill yourself. If you don't want to kill yourself, you're not listening carefully enough. Really ugly things that, that whether it, whether it's some modern art, uh, or, or John Cage, it, it, it really says something. It it, it 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 it's not just something that it is. It says something, and it can depress you. It can make you feel fractured and confused, or it can lead you toward God, toward the good, toward hope. And I'm 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 just I'm, I'm fascinated at how everyone knows that, but people in our culture rarely. Talk about that, Uh, really talk about the fact that if I go to MoMA, uh, it's not going to, you know, probably like give me hope for my depressed life. Why? Well, that's what we're talking about.
2: Listen, music is probably the one thing that my students most want to talk about, because I've never actually heard anybody discuss anything about the relationship between music and beauty or mathematics or tradition. But music is something everybody experiences and people can't help but respond to music for good or bad or whatever. It's like you feel it. Right. Um, It's you don't see it, but it it affects you somehow. But the example you gave of music in the midst of war, helping people to see that there's something bigger and greater than themselves. This is what music is supposed to do. Now, again, in the context where I live and work and teach and the people I work with, they might encounter all different kinds of music, even in their own places of worship. But I had one student who said to me, you know, at some point, we Christians have to say that certain kinds of music don't belong in church. Because I can tell you, when I wasn't a Christian, I was getting down in music, and it wasn't the Holy Spirit moving me. And his point, I think, was well taken, that there are forms of music that are actually meant to enliven the passions and the wrong kinds of passions. Again, people don't want to say that there's anything objective about beauty, but I do want to say you got to be careful what you put in your places of worship. I hear people say, and I think they're well-meaning, that, you know, Christianity has always engaged with pagan forms of art and music and architecture. And, you know, maybe even sounds like I'm saying we can co-create, we can uplift everything. But there are boundaries and there are borders. And I will say, I don't think I've ever said this on a show before, but I've actually been to a pagan ceremony. Most people who want to say we can, you know, Christianize pagan ceremonies haven't been to one.
1: Was it at the UN?
2: (laughs) It was in rural Haiti. It was a voodoo ceremony. Uh huh. And I went trying to be an agnostic observer. But I can tell you that when the music started and the drums started, And a woman was dressed in red, crawling backwards at a speed that I couldn't possibly imagine. I thought I was seeing a possession, which is what people who do voodoo would claim it is. And there's a clear link between the form of music and the form of dance and the spirit possession. So this is not controversial. This is, I think, exactly what pagan religions claim they're doing. And so then the question that I had to face as a believer in that context was, can I pull myself out? Can I say, well, this is not my religion, so this isn't going to affect me. And in that moment right there that I was debating that, this other guy came up to me and he said to me, do you think this is devil worship? And I said, well, I don't know that it is, but it's certainly possible that it is. And he said, well, you look uncomfortable I think I think you want to go. What he really wanted to do was not be the only one to leave. So he and I left, and I had to face with my conscience. Can I actually psychologically spiritually protect myself from that? And I tell you my Haitian Christian friend said don't try it. Don't try it. If you know that's what's going on and you know people are intentionally using these forms of music to bring about spirits that aren't the Holy Spirit, you don't want to be there. Now, what happens in our churches, you know, look Discernment of spirits is a difficult thing, right? And just because there's some form of worship going on and you say it's Christian, well, you know, doesn't mean that you don't have to have some kind of tradition you're standing on. So when you're doing your worship and your houses of worship, you got to think about where the forms you're using are coming from. There are some boundaries. And I think as Christians, we should, we should acknowledge that and um, acknowledge the potential for certain forms to really distract us and to get in us and stay in us. By the way, I went to confession about having been at the pagan ceremony. And, yeah. Um, I spoke to some priests about it. And, you know, there is a way in which you can block out the evil spirit. But the last thing you want to do is put yourself into a context where you might think, "Ooh, that's actually kind of neat. I wish I could do that. Yeah. You know, you don't, you don't want to put yourself in that
1: kind yeah. of context. Folks, right now in other parts of the world, people's lives are being threatened simply for believing in Jesus. People have been enslaved for their faith. So listeners to this show know that I'm passionate about the work of Christian Solidarity International because they protect and free those who are being persecuted and enslaved for their Christian faith. I've got to thank you for your life-changing generosity for years now. If you've given us ESI through this program, you have played a role in freeing literally thousands of of captives. So as we near the end of this year, can I ask you to give once again your gift of just $250 will free a woman in Sudan who has been enslaved for years. You can buy a believer's freedom and provide her with food and other supplies necessary to start her new life. Just $250. Maybe you can give more and free more people. Call 888-253-3522, 888-253-3522, or go to metaxastalk.com. Please do it, metaxastalk.com. I think a lot of people can be sleepwalking uh, without ever sensing the need for God, but but when when evil or really aggressive despair enters, for a lot of people that is the trigger in the good sense to okay I think I need something beautiful and good and true and maybe that's God and where would I find that?
2: Listen, and I think right now in terms of how do we speak as Christians in in the public realm? How do we communicate this hopeful message? You know, Christianity isn't just a set of ideas or a set of teachings, right? Jesus wasn't just a teacher. He didn't just tell parables. He was the divine who became man. And he lived in family and he lived in relationships and he created a community, right? So the project I'm working on during my sabbatical at Oxford is actually about the mother of God, the Theotokos, right? So as I mentioned to you earlier, I think it's time for Christians all to recognize that depicting Jesus and depicting Mary isn't optional. But also, if you're going to call yourself Christian, you have to take this idea of the mother of God seriously. It's not optional. Um, And for the early church, this was very clear that her motherhood was real, not just of Jesus the person, but she is the God bearer. So my kind of way that i've been drawn to spread this mesh of hope is by talking about the mother of god and images of the mother of god that i'm really drawn to are mary the seed of wisdom which i described a moment ago right where this woman has her son in the womb and she's bearing him but she's this kind of powerful maternal figure but the the power of mary is born from the wisdom of submitting her life to god and being with Jesus at the foot of the cross. And it's because she submitted her life to God and was at the foot of the cross that she now is in glory with her son. And she's inviting us to participate in this relationship. But on the topic of spiritual warfare, I taught this class called Ecumenical Devotion to Mary at Princeton Theological Seminary. And there was a woman who was in a Pentecostal uh, tradition who does a lot of uh, deliverance prayer for women who've lost children. Maybe they had abortions, maybe they were raped. And she said, you know, I heard something about Mary crushing the head of the serpent. And I wonder if the mother of God can help me, you know, minister to these women who need healing. And that also really got me thinking, right, that Mary is the new Eve, because in her freedom and assenting to God's plan for her life, she gave her will back to God, which is what gave her authentic freedom. So it's because Mary assented and agreed at the incarnation that we can have the hope as her children, that we can also crush the evil. Right. So I do think, again, this may not be what everybody's used to, but I do think that these images of Jesus and these images of the mother of God are pointing us towards God but that the objects, having them in our presence has a protective power. Um, And for me, having a couple of images, it doesn't have to be a lot, but a couple of images, then I feel that though the presence of the mother of God with me all the time. And that's what these images are supposed to do. That's why you're revering the person in the image, but the objects themselves are sacred objects. You know, and when I attended the blessing of this new workshop for liturgical art in uh, Chichester, England, the Anglican bishop said, in an ecumenical sense, all of us Christians believe in sacred objects. And we need to be supporting the creation of these sacred objects, beautiful architecture, beautiful images, so that people are surrounded in their daily life with images of beauty.
1: Um, We're... We're just about out of time. The book is The Wounds of Beauty, uh, and I hope people will look up the Scala Foundation. What's the website?
2: Scalafoundation.org. Okay. Uh, we're also on YouTube, uh, the Scala Foundation, and our YouTube is, has really wonderful examples of artists, including my husband, David Clayton, but also Martin Earle, Aidan Hart, Jim Blackstone, short videos where they take Um, an icon of the mother of God and explain some of the symbolism.
1: Margarita Mooney Suarez Clayton. Thank you you, for being our guest at Socrates in the studio. Been a joy. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Eric.